I'm a booger. I'm a booger booger. I'm a booger. I'm a booger 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 booger. Thank you for downloading this episode of I'm a Booker Booker, a novel podcast about books and the people who write them. An invisible enemy has turned our lives upside down. We now live in a world where a roll of toilet paper is more sought after than a first edition of Harry Potter and the Philosopher's Stone. Where Karen from the internet is an instant epidemiologist and has a meme to prove it. Where smoking dacha is legal and going to work will land you a prison sentence. We travel into the heart of the lockdown to bring you Amabuka Booker, the Quarantine Chronicles. Author's lockdown. T minus 18. Today's guest is one of the best novelists to come out of South Africa. And if you don't believe me, ask Gary Steingart. That's what the super sad true love story author said of Imran Kuvadia, adding that his prose is charming, clever, and sly. The prize-winning Imran is the author of the acclaimed novels The Wedding, Green-Eyed Thieves, High Low In Between, The Institute for Taxi Poetry, Tales of the Metric System, and his latest novel, A Spy in Time. Imran is a professor at the University of Cape Town and the director of its creative writing program. A Spy in Time is sci-fi speculative fiction and features a post-apocalyptic future, time travel, secret agencies, all rolled into an intriguing, entertaining, and thought-provoking tale in which the course of human history hangs in the balance. Humanity is hanging in the balance again. Imran, welcome to Amabuka Booker. Can you read an extract? I never set out to be anybody's prophet. I didn't see myself as a spy. I was 25 years old and I was ready for adventure. Before the checkup, I went to see my father to say my goodbyes. He was in a home on the other side of Najoma location. I found him absorbed in a game of chess. The board sat next to him on the long divan in the common room. The room is full of sunshine. The game was automatic. When he completed his move, the crown on the black queen spun round at high speed while the board considered its position. I suspect it was more for show than because it needed the time. In a few seconds, in any case, it made up its mind. The black bishop slid into the corner, pressed by two knights. I could see checkmate against the machine. My father stopped the clock. He looked sideways at me, his hands running up and down his legs, shrunk to the bone by age. He spoke as sharply as ever. You want a game, my friend? I'm running a tournament here. Seven players, six of which are the different personalities of this board. I don't play so much, I said. You looked as if you appreciated the brilliance of my last two moves. I thought I was dealing with a flesh and blood expert for once, a real flesh and blood expert. His face fell. Playing against a machine is never the same unless you have given them the freedom to consider all the assumptions. And that explains it. I, I said, uh, I used to play as a child. I don't play now. I'm very sorry to have troubled you. He went back to his game, putting his head down. For a quarter of an hour, I watched the pawns tread down the rows. It was futile. My father never returned to a subject once it was settled in his mind. I could have stayed on the armchair for the rest of the day and we would have continued to play his position without resuming our conversation, his forehead straining as he waited for the board to counter his moves. I don't know what I expected. He wouldn't have given me his blessing if I could have explained where I was going. He was an engineer and believed in the future over the past, the stars over our heads above the secrets of old time. Wonderful. The task of NV11, the central figure of a spy in time, is to ensure that the end of the world never happens. Can NV11 save the world from COVID-19? 
<laughs> well, if you had the chance to go back in time and, and take the first person who was about to eat a pangolin aside and give him something else for lunch, you probably would have saved us all a lot of trouble, no? Uh, yeah, I mean, time reversal is a very powerful tool to, uh, to deal with almost any problem. Did you grow up reading science fiction and time-traveling stories? Yes, absolutely. Um, they were some of the most interesting books. I mean, you know, we had very small libraries when I grew up. There was only actually one library in Durban that was open to Indians. And then later when the libraries were open, the nice thing about growing up in Natal is nobody else wanted to take those books out of the libraries. So I pretty much had them to myself. Uh, I mean, like, you know, I think when you're, when you're five, six, seven, eight, you read anything that's around and, and those things were around. So I, I grew up reading them. I don't think I read only them, but um, they always interested me. I think most people have those kinds of, I think nowadays readers are more, have a greater openness. So most people, uh, you know, they read all kinds of different things, different detective fiction or history or memoir. I think people are just much more open in terms of their reading habits. And they're more continuous maybe with how and why we read as a child. I mean, adults read graphic novels nowadays. Ever since Mouse, we've read, known that the graphic novel is this amazing form. I think it's good. So what sparked the idea for a spy in time? Well, as, as we all know, being locked down is, is, is quite a chore. I mean, it's, just, it's quite a psychological um, problem. And I think as a South African writer, I mean, you know, South African you know, nonfiction writer and reporter and stuff, sometimes being locked down with only South African subject matter is overwhelming. And I think Tolstoy says somewhere that, you know, writing is a bit like, it's a bit like mining. Like you dig a certain amount and you dig, and then at a certain point you can't dig any deeper in this particular place. You go over and you try somewhere else. You see how far you get that way. Um, so I think for me, writing something quite different was that attempt to find a new perspective, to try something out, and also simply to experiment with, I think the one thing you do understand more, I don't know if you get better at it as a writer, but you understand the kind of essence of storytelling better. At least I did. I mean, I think I was, I always had trouble understanding what, what is a story? What does that mean? And uh, I think it was also just a chance to try out what pure storytelling felt like, or at least my my best attempt at, at trying to tell a pure story in a way that, say, Treasure Island um, is a pure story. So what is your strategy for not going stir-crazy during this lockdown? Well, you have to, firstly, you have to avoid your children uh, at all costs. <laughs> <laughs> Look, in some ways, it, it's quite continuous with being a writer because being a writer is you have a fair amount of spare time, if you're, if you're lucky, and you have to figure out how do you structure that spare time in a way that it doesn't drive you completely nuts. And I mean that in a day-to-day -day way, even if there wasn't a lockdown. So I think it's partly just about managing time and having variation. I think Winston Churchill said, says somewhere that your mind doesn't actually need rest. It just needs change. And I think that's probably right. You can just as long as you keep changing what you're doing every 30 minutes, you know, even if it's writing a different thing or playing with a different child or being in a part of a different part of your house or garden, if you have a garden, um, the variation kind of makes up to some extent uh, for the loss of the outside world. Which one of your characters would you choose to be in isolation with and why? They all seem pretty horrible to me. Um, <laughs> uh, I don't know. There's this very nice kind of Brazilian man called Joe in Spy and Time who seems quite appealing. He's kind of a fun, somewhat fun-loving spy. He's kind of a, he's a, he's a long-term sleeper spy for the agency and he lives in, 
in uh, Rio, and I think that would probably he would probably be the best person to to be hanging out with at a time at a time like this. Was NV11 based on anybody? Of on on one of my many friends who are who are time traveling agents. <laughs> um, you know the thing about it, and and having read your book about South African spies and knowing something about spies in our part of the world, when you actually read about spies and when you know something about them, they're not very appealing people. The nice thing about Enver is he's quite a, he's kind of, there's a certain sincerity and honesty about him and he's curious and he's kind of ready to grow up and, and to see more of the world and to have a genuine adventure. I think that's, that's a, he's a much more appealing person than most actual spies we know about who quite, who tend to be quite broken people who don't, um, they don't, they're not capable of that kind of sincerity and interest. So, um, having said that, I have, for some reason or the other, I've had some experience with spies of different kinds. My um, my father's cousin was actually quite, seems to have been quite high-ranking in the ANC's kind of intelligence department. And, you know, we've certainly seen the damage that spies can wreak in our country in the last five, ten years under our last president. So, yeah, I mean, I, I guess I know a little about spies, not a huge part. And what novel are you working on now? I have abandoned fiction for the moment because I think, I'm not sure how old you are, John, and if you're as old as I am or roughly the same age, at certain point you kind of lose your lightness and sense of humor and stuff. So you want, everything becomes very, <laughs> and you become a very grumpy, I don't know, maybe it's always grumpy, but you become a grumpier father and so forth. So you just, you want to do things that's, that seem more serious on the face of it. Or maybe it's just changed. So I just finished a book on... Tolstoy and Gandhi and Mandela and kind of what they have in common and how they learned, you know, what Gandhi learned from Tolstoy, what Mandela learned from Gandhi and from Tolstoy. It's quite a, it was a very intense book because it meant reading through all these things that these three men had written and had talked about for, you know, all of their lives, trying to come to terms with them. And um, I mean, thankfully, they're very interesting people. So I felt that was good. But then I suddenly got involved in a project on poisoning, which I've been working on for the last year or so. And that's, that's, um, it's much darker. Um, it's, it's also not a novel. It's actually just kind of telling the story of different incidents of poisoning in, in the history of this country and how they were dealt with by the police and courts, if it wasn't actually the police and courts who were involved in poisoning people, um, and uh, what those fears have meant for us. So I guess also not, not an optimistic book, but, but a very interesting one in terms of the nooks and crannies of human beings, how people do. I guess the last book on Gandhi was and Mandela was really how people learn to do good. And this book is how easy it is to do evil and what evil looks like and feels like. If, and we're talking about worst case scenario, you run out of toilet paper, what book on yourself would you sacrifice? That, oh, if, I, if, I, if I gave you an honest answer to that question, I'd never be able to talk to half the people I, <laughs> I know. Um, what seems like a book? We're throwing away. Part of this project on poisoning has been reading a lot of uh, memoirs from the Bush War in Rhodesia, and a lot of memoirs of kind of uh, soldiers or, or who fought in Southwest Africa and Rhodesia and did terrible things and wrote these kind of self-glorifying memoirs afterwards. I think, well, I would happily burn all of them if uh, if they didn't come of use to any, if they weren't useful to anybody else. But obviously, you know, in general, you try not to burn books. The podcast Desert Island Discs allows participants to take with them on a desert island a song and a luxury item. I'm a booker booker is much more generous and we'll allow you to take a song, a luxury item and a book into your lockdown. Which things would you take? Okay, what song? Song is tough. I mean, it would probably be, I don't know if I could, could I take all of the Goldberg variations? You know, all of Bach's Goldberg variations. I might might do that because it's, 
it's sung like, and you know, there are, you know, what is it, 32, 33 variations. Yeah. Um, okay, what else do I get to take? A luxury item. Yeah. Probably, I mean, you kind of have to take your iPad, right? And also, or a, or a MacBook or something. And then I get what else? I get something else. A book. A book. A book is really tough. Um, well, you know, I've been reading the, the reports of the Truth and Reconciliation Commission for the last uh, year as well. And I have to say, as a, as a kind of giant book of amazing, shocking, horrifying stories, it is, it's been one of the most interesting books I've ever read in my life. And so I probably take those, if you could bind them as a single volume, I'd probably take those along. Sure. Well, now we're going to see if you've really lost your sense of humor and we're going to subject you yeah. to the sound effects. Rorschach test. Okay, go for it. <laughs> okay, that, that, that's interesting. It's also quite a hard assignment. I don't know why. Why would a rooster have his voice sped up? Um, you know, I assume somebody, somebody would be taping him and then speed up his voice so that they could communicate more than one. You know, in, in a shorter amount of time, they could communicate more rooster signals. Um, why would they do that? Uh, I don't know. Um, I do, I mean, the one thing it reminds me of is I had, I had quite a good friend in New York who would spend a lot of time with his cat. He and his wife would spend a lot of time with their cat, I think in Brooklyn. And the, th- the way they entertained their cat was they would, this was, they kind of, they refused to move on to CDs. This is about 20 years ago. But what they would do is they would play records of bird sounds and bird calls and so forth. And their cat would kind of pounce around the living room thinking that he was about to, um, you know, find a bird. So uh, it seems like a useful way to entertain your pets if you can't go out. That was good. Those are, you know, in a literal sense, there seemed to be people cheering. Why would they be cheering? I don't know. Um, right now, I'm terrified of large groups of people. I mean, I actually had to go out to the supermarket yesterday. My wife made me go out, even though I that one of us has to die. It may, you know, maybe it shouldn't be me. Um, and I suddenly realized how scary large groups of people, especially large groups of people cheering, um, have become. For me, that's always been true because I was sent to a boarding school when I was quite young, like eight and a half, nine years old, and I, I hated rugby. And so since then, kind of people cheering reminds me of a rugby game, which makes me think that there's a bloodthirsty mob around. So I've always had this kind of allergy towards uh, large groups of people cheering. And since then, I mean, how many occasions in the world have not started with people cheering some terrible idea or terrible person and then, uh, uh, you know, before it all went wrong? So, yeah, I'm a pessimist about people cheering. You know, I have three children, three boys, and that is clearly my 19-year-old son trying to drive, <laughs> if he ever finally learns to drive. I don't know who else it could be, but it seemed, you know, like the way that uh, that car dealt with the brakes is probably him. I mean, it could be that, it could be my, could be my father, it could be my wife. I don't know. It's, some, it's someone related to me driving. Hmm. That's a really interesting sound. It could be a whole bunch of things, but what it says to me is someone's trying to do something very intently and softly and, and con, you know, with concentration. So it could be a mosquito, which is kind of just tap, tap, tapping away so it finally gets to your, you know, to your blood. It could be a writer kind of tapping away on different keys, you know, someone as innocuous as me or someone as terrifying as Jack Nicholson writing um, all work in no play in The Shining. Or it could just be uh, one of these... 
it, it could be something beavering away at the foundations of a house. You know, when my, my father-in-law, who's German, came to visit us and he saw these ants and he said, oh my goodness, ants, that's terrifying because every day, every minute, these ants are, you know, chipping away at the foundation of your house. So you have to get rid of these ants. And I'd never thought of ants in that way, but I think that is probably how he hears these ants all the time. That that is some kind of modem. It's either a video game or a modem. Um, if it's a modem, it's one of those very old-fashioned ones. When um, when we, I was actually living in America then, and we had what was it called, America Online, and um, you would hear your modem sort of slowly connect to the internet over a period of twenty minutes, and then you could roam around these bulletin boards full of fanatics and conspiracy theorists and. It was clear to me at the time that the internet was going nowhere, and I'm glad that my prediction has, has proved as accurate as, uh, as it has. Huh. That's very interesting. Um, obviously, that's kind of slightly de- people laughing in a slightly demented way, where the pitch or the timbre has been changed. Um, and I think what it really reminds me of is the same way that you had those, that crowd cheering is when people laugh together, they often laugh together for the worst of all possible reasons. And they stop thinking about why they're laughing together. You just get sucked into laughing with other people. And um, it's, you know, it just reminds me that it's a good idea to think before you, you laugh. Although, of course, none of us can really do that. Hey, Thank you. The 70 alarm is residential 10 That was clearly people talking, you know, you never hear that kind of talking on intercoms and radios and people calling in in South Africa. It's one thing I like about South Africa because in the U.S. I think you have this kind of constant military-style chatter. You know, someone calls in from a helicopter to a newspaper studio or someone calls up the police or some police unit deploys its, you know, um, I read an article recently about how American police units all have these armored, you know, tanks and armored personnel carriers attached. So I think that voice comes out of that world of kind of, you know, threats that are always about to happen all the time and fear and excessive militarization. It's one thing we don't suffer from at all, um, except in the last few days when our army has started patrolling our streets. Thanks, Ibrad. I really appreciate you coming at such short notice. Okay, great. Well, thank you, guys. It was fun. Thank you for listening to Amabuka Buka, the Quarantine Chronicles, live from the lockdown. You can subscribe to Amabuka Buka on iTunes or wherever you get your podcasts. Amabuka Buka is produced by Jonathan Anser and Dan Dews and brought to you by Books Live in collaboration with Multimedia Live. Authors who would like to be featured, email jonathan.anser at gmail.com. Amabuka Buka. I'm a booker.